And we find ourselves still in the Sermon on the Mount. This semester we've been kind of slowly sledding our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We've said each week that the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of what it looks like for a community of people to take the gospel into their lives and then to work it out in real time and real space as a community. So we're looking at what that one aspect of what that means tonight, which is to say that part of what the community of Jesus does is that we pray. Simple enough. Let's look at Matthew 6, beginning in verse 5, and we'll chat about it. Jesus says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Let me pray before we consider it together. Father, we do uh, ask that you would join us in these next few moments. Uh, If these folks are anything like me, we're at the point of the semester where we're tired, where we're worn out, we're ready for summer, we're ready for the snow to go away. Some of us are. And uh, I I pray that you would join us, that you would teach us, that you would attend your word now and, and pierce our hearts afresh with the good news that we need to hear. And so we we pray, as we always do, humbly, dependently, on your grace and on your mercy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you know, RUF took a group of students to Chicago for spring break. And when we got back from spring break, like the very next day, I got sick. Not fun. But it was the kind of sick where it wasn't like... You could, you could actually function in life, like I couldn't like get around and like take care of my children, but it wasn't so bad that I just like had to be laid out in bed and like just sleep for the next like 48 hours. So what I did is I just laid in bed and just laid there. I was like exhausted, but not like sleepy tired where you like had to like pass out, totally bored. So one night as I'm in bed at seven o'clock thinking, what am I going to do with my bored self? I thought, you know, I rarely have an opportunity of just free, quiet time to pray. And so I started to pray. I said, this is, this is a gift. This sickness is a gift. Here I am in bed. So I started praying. And a few minutes into my prayer, I imagined myself on a stage. And there's like a stadium full of people. And I got a microphone. I'm like, get up, everybody on your feet, get up. And so I'm getting everybody up. Music is starting to build and anticipate a little bit. And so the crowd's getting hype, and there's like this billowing kind of white smoke that starts coming up on the stage. And the people in the crowd don't know what's happening, but I do because I'm on stage. And what's happening is that somebody is being lifted up from the ground level up into the smoke so that when the smoke clears, they magically appear. And the smoke clears, 
and it's Beyonce. <laughs> and when people see her, the beat drops, and now it's me and Beyonce, like, like tearing up this whole crowd. And all of a sudden, I catch myself and think, I'm supposed to be praying right now. And then I think, why in the world am I daydreaming about this? Why is this where my brain goes? And then I thought, um, okay, I have to share, I have to share that with, with the students at RUF. And here's why I wanted to share that. It's because if you noticed, as Jesus begins this little section here, he teaches us how to pray. Which means he assumes that we don't know how. That we have to learn how to do this because we're not good at it. And I think that's actually really good news. That Jesus frees us up to not be good prayers. That this is something that we actually have to learn how to do. I am obviously not good at praying. Because when I get even a free space of mental you know, freedom to pray, my brain drifts into odd destinations. And so it really is good news for me, and hopefully it'll be good news for you tonight to hear Jesus just even make the assumption from the beginning, you're not a rock star prayerer, and that's okay. We're freed up to be terrible at this, to be frustrated at this as we learn how to do this. It really frees us up to pray. Because the, the reality is, if you consider yourself religious, if you consider yourself a Christian, you consider yourself spiritual in any way, you're frustrated with prayer. My guess is we're all frustrated with prayer because as soon as you even start talking about it, you either get uh, bored or you start feeling really guilty because you know that you should be praying. I mean, no, your response tonight is not going to be like, whoa, whoa, you're telling me I'm supposed to be praying? No, that's not going to be your response. Your response is going to be, of course, I know I should be praying. I'm just terrible at it. I need to do better. But really, there's good news here because if you're anything like me, you fall asleep when you pray, and you get distracted when you pray, and your brain goes to weird places when you pray, then this is really good news for you and for me. So what Jesus does is he helps us by, by drawing our attention to three things. And these are the three things I want to highlight with you tonight. He draws our attention to the who of prayer, to the how of prayer, and then to the why of prayer. Three things. The who, the how, the why. So let's look at these one at a time. First, the who of prayer. And what I mean by that is to think about who we are actually praying to. Because I think we typically relate to God in prayer the same way that we relate to the greeters at Walmart. You know those sweet like old people in uh, kind of blue vests? We come into Walmart, we say hey to them, they say hey to us, you know, they give us the cart or whatever, and then we spend the bulk of our time filling up our carts with what we want, check out, leave, and then kind of say goodbye to them as we're, you know, walking out the door if they, you know, have to check our receipt sometimes. But that's the same way that we pray. We kind of, you know, oh, Father in heaven. So we say what's up to him when we walk in. But then the rest of our prayer is just us filling up our cart with what we want. Do this. Give me this. Give me that. Fix this. Change this. Help me with this. And then at the end, we kind of say peace out to him at the end. Oh, yeah, and we pray all this in Jesus' name too. And what Jesus is doing is he's giving us from the beginning this glorious vision of who God is because he knows you're not going to pray and you're not going to want to pray unless you really get a grasp on who God is. So look at verse 9. 
Here's how he, here's how he tells us and instructs us to address God. Verse 9, pray then like this, our Father. Now the image there is an image of someone who's completely tender, someone who's uh, intimately involved in your life, compassionate, knows the details of your life, knows you well. I mean, the the imagery of family, calling God your father, has connotations uh, of feeling like you're at home. And so what Jesus is saying is is to be in God's presence is like you're at home. And you know what it's like when you're at home. You can totally be yourself. You can walk around in your pajamas. You can, you know, have your hair all jacked up. You can you can be yourself and be messy, and that's okay because your family knows you, is involved with you, and accepts you. This 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 reminds me of uh, that Edward Sharp song, Home. You know, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Home is whenever I'm with you. And that's the same idea here. When I'm with God, whenever I'm with God, it's like being home. That's what Jesus is saying by saying he's your father. But notice he doesn't just say pray like this, our father. He says pray our father in heaven. Now in heaven, Jesus is not talking about where God's like chilling at the moment. God's not just hanging out in heaven. What he means is God has control over the heavens. In other words, God is saying, Jesus is saying, even though God is your father, he's not some sweet but really impotent old grandfather in a rocking chair who can't do anything for you. He's your king. He's powerful. He's majestic. He's sovereign. He's in control of everything. This is the imagery that he gives you right from the beginning. This is how you need to refer to God, father in heaven. And if you think about it, the human heart needs both. The human heart needs a God that is both Father and Heaven, and no other religion, I want you to know, offers you a God that is both. Traditional religions like um, Judaism, Islam, traditional religions offer you a God that is powerful, that is sovereign, that is in control of all things, but he is distant, and he's removed, and he doesn't really care about what's going on in the details of your life because he's so other, he's so far away. Modern religions, kind of progressive, secular religions as we have them now, progressive kind of stuff, gives you a God that's a father that's kind of warm and fuzzy and sweet and loving, but he's not powerful. He can't do anything. He can't contradict you. He can't judge you. He can't stop you. He can kind of just, he's squishy. He can be whatever you want him to be. And so God, Jesus is saying, Christianity is the only religion that offers you both. A God that is intimately, compassionately involved in your life and yet powerful and sovereign and in control. Think about this further. This is what you need even at a friendship level. Let's just say, stupid example, let's just say that you are going through a really hard time because you got a speeding ticket and you can't afford to pay the ticket and now your insurance is going to go up and you're totally just like upset and bummed out about the situation. Stupid example, but walk with me with it. Let's say you have one friend that you know you sit down and tell this story to. I just got a speeding ticket, totally sucks. I don't know how I'm gonna pay for it. And they hurt with you, you know, they weep with you, they empathize. But that's all they do. They're very tender, very sweet, but at the end of the day, they're not that helpful because they don't speak any, they don't say anything, they don't do anything. They're just very sweet and empathetic. But let's say you have another friend, you tell the story, you know, you're crying, oh, I got this ticket, I don't know how I'm going to pay it, and your friend just says, okay, and like coldly, very, you know, walks out of the room. An hour later, comes back and says, hey, I paid, pay the ticket, and then walks away. You know, that's very helpful. That's nice. I like that. Thank you. Very helpful, but no, no tenderness, no 
relatability, no person, you know, they, they, they just kind of coldly interact with you. And so you, if you only have one or the other, you've got a bad friend. And if you only have one or the other, you have a bad God. But the God of the Bible says you have both. He is not just Father, but he's Father in heaven. And when you begin to get this, when you get the who of prayer, who you're actually praying to, then you're not going to just want to pray to him and involve him about the big things in your life, the big crises in your life. When you really need him, you're going to involve him in all the little details of your life as well. Why? Because you know he actually cares. He actually is intimately involved in your life, and he has power to do something about it. You enter into this lifestyle of prayer, a a constant dialogue with him, instead of just these once in a while, every now and then, hey, can you bail me out of this situation kind of thing. So that's the first thing that we see, is that Jesus paints this majestic picture of who God really is, the who of prayer. He's father, you know, sweet, tender, intimate, but yet he's a father in heaven, majestic, powerful, your king. But secondly, Jesus doesn't just orient us to the who of prayer. He actually instructs us how to actually do it. And so, if you look at verse 9, Jesus says, you know, pray, pray then like this. He's basically saying, here's this template, here's a pattern for you to pray. And he gives us sort of these big, huge categories to pray, which now has become called the Lord's Prayer. And so really, there's, there's so much here. We cannot go deep into this. We really can only skip along the surface of this prayer like a sea dew in the ocean or the lake. Okay, so what I want to show you is that he teaches us that we're to pray in five ways. Five ways, we'll go through them quick. If we're going to pray in the way that Jesus wants us to pray, we need to pray reverently, missionally, dependently, confessionally, and humbly. Okay? We'll work through these five quick. Here are the five that he teaches us how to pray. Reverently, missionally, dependently, confessionally, humbly. First, we pray reverently. And what I, where I get this from is when he says, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed, we don't usually use that word a whole lot. But the word to hallow means to set something apart, to make it holy. Which basically means to make it distinct, to make it special, to make it famous. And so Jesus is saying... We, we pray that God would set his name apart, that he would, tr- he would make his name holy. And, and in the Bible, when, when it talks about God's name, that's basically just a way of talking about who God actually is, the, who he is in his person, the way that he's revealed himself. So here's what Jesus is saying. At the top of his prayer list, the top priority when he begins his prayers, and he encourages us to pray in the same way, is to pray that everybody in the universe would grow to know who God actually is and that they would treat him accordingly. Meaning that everyone would come to know him and therefore everyone would be caught up in worship and adoration of who he really is. That's the first thing Jesus encouraged us to pray for. And here's my question for you. Is that even on the radar of your prayers? When you actually find time, and I'm assuming some of you may, find time to pray, Does this make it anywhere into your prayer list? Because for Jesus, it's the top. This is the way you begin, is to to remind yourself and to recalibrate your heart to the center of reality. In other words, when you pray, God, would your name be hallowed? 
Would your name be famous? Would people come to know you in my classes and on this campus and all over this universe? And would people come to adore you and worship you? What you're doing is you're saying, you're the center of the universe, not me. You're the thing that everything orbits around, not me. And actually, that's very healthy. Because if you're anything like me, my, my prayers radically assume that I'm the center of the universe. And so I need to pray this way too because it it reorients me and brings me back to reality. So that's the first thing. He teaches us how to pray and that we pray reverently. Secondly, we pray missionally. And this is when he says, your kingdom come. When you pray for God's kingdom to come, what you're doing is you're praying that God's gracious rule would break into this world. That God, uh, that every square inch of this fallen world would be taken over with God's ruling kingship. This is why he says in the very next line, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about this. Where is God's will perfectly executed right now? Uh, It's in heaven. When God tells the angels there and the church that's there to like do stuff, they do it. They don't roll their eyes at his command. So his will is perfectly executed in heaven, and that's why heaven is perfectly glorious. But earth is not the same way. God's will is not perfectly executed on this earth in the same way. So what we're praying for here is that when God's will comes down to earth, when God tells people to do stuff here, we're praying that people would not rebel. That people would not roll their eyes and throw up their middle finger at him, but that they would actually submit. Because what, what we're basically asking for is for heaven to come to earth. We're asking God to renovate this entire creation. And I think the vision that, that this is painting here is, uh, reminds me of the Mumford and Sons song, um, not, what is it, not with haste, not with haste. You know the chorus of that song? Uh, this is off their new album. We will run and scream. You will dance with me. Just listen, to, just pay attention to the imagery. We will run and scream. We will, you will dance with me. They'll fulfill our dreams and we'll be free. And we will be who we are and they'll heal our scars and sadness will be far away. That's what we're praying for. When we pray for God's kingdom to come. And for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for us to be who we are. For us to dance and scream. For us to have our scars healed. For there to be no more sadness. That's at the forefront of our prayer. We pray missionally that God would fix every square inch of this broken and fallen world. Second, thirdly, we pray dependently. Give us this day our daily bread. So, you know, our, our needs do matter too. You know, in this prayer, Jesus doesn't just give us this kind of pious, God-flavored prayer and say, you know, just pray to God, pray about God. He actually says, you know, you're, you know pray about like your needs as well. Pray about your daily necessities. And so I think this is hard for us as rich Americans to pray for daily necessities. We don't really have any. We don't really know what it, what it really feels like to go hungry, to really go hungry. Because we have refrigerators, we have meal plans, we have Walmart, we have friends that can bail us out, that you know, can, we can hop on their meal plan ticket. We don't know what it means to pray for daily bread, but Jesus still encourages us to pray for daily necessities because our daily needs actually do matter. 
Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was driving to Chattanooga because when you switch jobs within RUF, you have to be interviewed, kind of examined again by a group of people in this uh, thing called a theological examination committee where four or five guys sit around and basically make sure you're not theologically weird. And so that's what I did. I drove to Chattanooga, which, by the way, is uh, which I really appreciate. And I think, you know, here's just a little side plug commercial for RUF. Why I think you should love RUF is because people actually take it very seriously to not throw some joker up here. Man, that sounds very arrogant, but <laughs> didn't intend it to come out of my mouth that way. But uh, RUF wants to check out and make sure that you're getting trained, equipped ministers. Commercial over. So I'm on my way to Chattanooga for this theological examination committee, and I'm kind of nervous about it. Don't know what they're going to ask. I'm weird enough. I don't like people prying up in my business. So I had to leave my wife. Well, we have two kids, and this was, this was right around the time where, some of you may not know, but our son, who was just born in December, had a fever, and long story short, uh, it was potentially very dangerous and scary, and so we were all nervous about that. My wife was exhausted. I'm driving all of this head at once. Right as I'm walking out the door, we figure out he has another fever. My wife's at the end of her rope, and I'm about to leave for a couple of days. And, and on the ride to Chattanooga, all I could pray was, Jesus, help, help. Like, I need you right now. That was the extent of my prayer then. I need your help with all this stuff because I, I, I don't even know what else to pray. And actually, after the fact, me and my wife, Catherine, were talking about the way that we were, the way that we had been praying about kind of this insanity that just kind of <laughs> dropped into our lap. And we've, as we talked, we figured out that that prayer, to pray help, I need you, with all of these details, is actually when you're the most sane. That's actually when you're the most in touch with reality. Because if you live your life either as an atheist or as a functional atheist, there's lots of Christians, myself included, that can live like functional atheists. Like functionally speaking, God doesn't really exist, that I'm in control of my world around me. When you live like that, you're out of touch with reality. To think that you can actually control anything on this chaotic planet is insane. So to involve Jesus and to say, help, I need you because I'm not in control is actually when you are the most in touch with reality. Do I like to feel that way? No. But yet, as I lean into that and pray dependently for God to help, there is a joy and a freedom that enables you to release and relinquish control because you know you never had it in the first place. That's the third way that we pray. We pray dependently. Fourthly, we pray confessionally. This is when Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Jesus' assumption here is that we're in God's debt because of sin. Because of our sin, because of our screw-up, we're in God's debt. But what he says, what he encourages us, is to walk straight up to God and ask him to wipe the debt away. Walk right up to God and ask him to forgive you, to wipe the debt away. But what he assumes behind that is that we constantly, constantly, need to do it. That we constantly need to ask for God's forgiveness. This is, forgiveness is not just the one-time thing to get you in the door with God. It's the daily lifestyle. It's, it's the life of a Christian. And so if you do consider yourself a Christian, what this means for you is that you need to start routinely, regularly, pulling out the microscope and analyzing your own heart and finding the junk 
and the garbage and the crappy motives and the selfishness and the idolatry that's all lurking in there and bring it all out of the closet and bring it to God for him to forgive. Because if you don't, if you don't undergo that type of exercise as a practice, you are missing out on the exhilarating experience of being forgiven by God again and again and again. Look, I'm convinced, I've been on this campus for four years now, I'm convinced that the reason why Christians get so bored and burnt out with the whole God thing is because what typically happens is you have some experience, maybe when you're in high school or middle school or maybe even here at college, you go to a conference and you taste the sweetness of God's forgiveness. You experience it, you know it. But then you buy the lie that the Christian life is now about you being good, and cleaning up your behavior, cleaning up your language, not doing that and doing that. And when you start living your life of I'm being good, if you actually go down that road of I'm going to be a good person now, the more good you are, the less you need Jesus. And the sweetness of experiencing that forgiveness begins to fade the enthusiasm begins to die away, and then you try to start manufacturing it with conferences. And I got to get more sermons. I got to read this book, and I got to get this worship experience to get my level of enthusiasm back up. And the reason why it's not working is because you're neglecting this. You're not rummaging through your heart and finding all the sin that you can find, bringing it out to Him, and allowing yourself to be reminded that the gospel is true, that He forgives it all. The more you do that, the more you bring your junk out and and soak and bathe in the gospel of grace, that's when you tap into that exhilarating, deeper, more mature, more rich, more complex joy that you're actually out to get. But you've got to start praying confessionally. It's counterintuitive, I know. But the way to happiness is through the door of despair. Fifth, we pray humbly. I'll be very quick on this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is basically you admitting, I can't do this on my own. God, if you leave my life, I will ruin it. If you depart from my life, if you don't lead me in the right direction, I will make a mess of everything. So that's how Jesus teaches us to pray. That's the, how, that's the template. That's the big categories. Last. Why pray? Why in the world would we want to carve time out of our busy, distracted, constantly stimulated life to actually sit down with God and talk to him? Especially in light of verse 8, which says, God already knows before you ask. So why would we want to pray? Well, let's look at this quickly. The, the, uh, the reason why we pray, it's loaded into Jesus' entire framework as he sets up prayer in the first place. Look at verse 7. Let me read verse 7 to you. He says this. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. See, he's saying the way that the Gentiles would pray to their pagan gods is that they would uh, try to get the gods' attention by the amount of time that they spent praying. In other words, they felt like if I'm going to get a hearing with the gods, then what I need to do is I need to impress them with long, eloquent, spiritual-sounding, pious prayers. And then maybe if they're impressed, I'll get their attention and I can kind of, we can do our business here. 
But what Jesus is saying here is that you don't have to prove your worth with long, eloquent, spiritual-sounding prayers with the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible has already paid a way for you to get his attention. And it's not you, and it's not the length of your cool-sounding prayers. The reason is, is that the God of the Bible is a God of grace. He's a God of grace. He doesn't look at you and ask you to jump through hoops in order for him to be impressed with you, in order for him to get, for you to get his attention. And so what this means is, if you consider yourself a Christian, if you are in Christ, if you've connected to him by faith, then when you sin, when you blow it, when you, know, when you screw up in some major way and you come before God with all that guilt and with all that shame and all you're doing is just you know, smacking your own back with the whip saying, I'm the worst, I'm the worst, I'm a worm, I'm terrible. God says, stop it. Stop it. You don't need to beat yourself up right now because Jesus was beaten up for you. you can, you're freed. You're freed of this. And if you want something from God, and you come before him and you're trying to butter him up with, with all the things that you've done that are great. You know, I'm a good person. I go to RUF. I've been reading my Bible. Here I've been trying to pray. I'm, a, I'm doing good things. I work hard. You're trying to butter him up. He says, stop it. If you're in Christ, this means that you have Jesus' perfect righteousness, which means that you're already completely, perfectly worthy to enter into his presence. So if the gospel is true, and it is, And this means that when you pray, you can come before the God of the universe and be radically honest, radically raw with yourself and with your sin without any fear of condemnation. Because he is your father in heaven who has made a way because of the person of Jesus. Doesn't that, if that is true, let me just ask you a hypothetical. If that's true, that you could be that real and honest with the God of the Bible because he's a God of grace. Wouldn't that make you want to spend time with him? I mean, when I'm around people that just make me feel guilty, that remind me of stuff that I've done wrong and bring it up in either in direct or indirect ways, I don't want to be around people like that. It works the same way with God. If you come before God and all you experience is him with his arms folded, tapping his foot, saying, well, good to see you again. If that's what you think God is like, then you're not going to want to spend time with him. But what if he is your father in heaven that actually comes running towards you, singing over you with delight, as the scripture says, when you come into his presence? I'll end with this. Um, A couple of years ago, Duke University launched a website uh, called the Me Too Campaign. Maybe some of you have heard about this. It was, it was a, basically an online forum for Duke students to write in and basically anonymously vent and just sort of pour out their heart onto this website because, you know, no one would ever be able to connect it back to them. So I want to, I want to read you a few of these excerpts because they're pretty, they're pretty insightful. Here's, here's, the, here's one of them. This person writes, I gained 30 pounds in college. And on my petite frame, I just look like a pig. I long for a day when I look in the mirror and see something beautiful. I wonder just how unattractive I am to men. Here's another one. It says, I feel like I'm drowning from the inside out. Another one says this, when I get stressed, I can't stop eating. 
This one says, I feel so alone. I don't know what I'm doing here. I just want it to be okay. And something tells me the only way that will happen is if I transfer. I can't even transfer until next fall, and I don't know if I can make it until then. Last one says, uh, I would really, really love to not be depressed or anxious anymore. I know things will get better someday, but I'm tired of waiting. Now, these students on this website are praying, in a sense, where they're taking uh, their concerns, and they're being unbelievably raw and honest, and they're laying their concerns out. And I think that we're really attracted to that. We're attracted to being that honest, to being that vulnerable, to just unloading like that. But I cannot help but feel sorry for these people. Because as soon as they write that out, and as soon as they click the send button, it's just going to this faceless black internet vortex without any feedback, without any concern, without anybody coming alongside of them. They're just sort of throwing their concerns out into a void. But what if you could pray like that? That honestly, that raw And it's going before the face of your Father who is in heaven. That's what prayer is. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. Into a relationship with your Father who is a God of complete grace. Who receives you purely on the basis of Jesus. And therefore you do not have to be perfect. You don't have to be put together. You don't have to be buttoned up. You can come and pray radically honest, raw prayers. And know that he will receive you. Because he's a God of grace. That's Jesus' invitation for you. And it's mine as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we would ask that you would give us more confidence in who you are. Give us more of a vision of how gloriously gracious and wonderful and intimate and tender and compassionate you really are. And I pray that that would free us to want to pray, to, to want to be with you. To not just come to you as some sort of genie that we're trying to win over so that you'll do our bidding. But that we would actually experience intimacy and communion with our King and with our Father. So many of us have no clue what I'm talking about and many times I don't either. And so would you teach us all, would you lead us into experiencing you and communing with you in a deeper way. And we would pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.